Hi everyone, a very warm welcome to you all on this particularly chilly December day. My name is Mark O'Grady and I'm a Principal Consultant here at Berndine. I've been working here now since 2019 and I've never looked back. I'm incredibly lucky in that I get to work with a great bunch of passionate and like-minded people, each doing their bit to make the world of work that little bit better for all of us. I spend most of my time here at Berndine talking about mental health. We deliver a whole suite of products from unpacking and managing mental health, right through to mental health first aid and more recently suicide first aid. So why are we here today? Well, this week is National Grief Awareness Week, which runs from December 2nd through to December 8th. And it's there to help raise awareness on all aspects of grief and loss on a national scale. It's an opportunity for all of us to think about those who might be grieving right now, and perhaps to think about our own grief as well and the support mechanisms that are out there. From a workplace perspective, how can we create a more compassionate workplace culture, one that truly cares during times of grief? A gentle reminder to anyone listening here today to please look after yourselves. And if there's anything that comes up for you, please make sure you check in with someone afterwards. We'll also be sharing a list of resources at the end of this session that will be available for you to take away. But before we do any of that, I'd like to hand you over now to my wonderful colleague here at Berndine and indeed our CEO, Victoria Lewis, to introduce herself and to let us know why she's here today. Victoria, hello. Thanks, Mark. So I'm Victoria. Yes, I am. Uh, a mother, daughter, sister, partner, friend, and the CEO of Berndine. Probably in that order, to be honest. It's a privilege to lead a team of professionals who spend every day thinking and talking about emotions in workplaces. Why is this important to me? And why do I think it deserves airtime? Death is, of course, part of our everyday lives, but continues to be something that we find hard to talk about. Some cultures, seem more comfortable than others I think you know like the ceremonies and the gatherings before during and after a loved one dies I mean they can be so truly magical to learn about I do find though that perhaps one of the most common themes I hear in global workplaces is the fear around the language to use about death and the conversations themselves with the person who's grieving Mark and I are not clinical psychologists or palliative medical practitioners, and we don't intend to hold ourselves out as such. But we are people who understand a lot about the dynamics of workplaces. These social environments are full of different people, different emotions and responses. Humans deal with death and grief differently. And we felt we'd share some of our experiences today in the hope that this can help us all navigate the complexity around death and grief and how we can support each other at work. So Mark, I'd like to ask you a question. Can you tell me a little bit about your story with grief and why it's so important for you to speak about it today? Yes, of course. Thank you, Victoria. I'm here to tell you a little bit about my brother, Brian. Brian was a very funny, charming and handsome young man who quite literally had the world at his feet. But sadly, we lost my brother to addiction just over three years ago when he had turned just 39 years old. About 10 years before his passing, life got difficult for my brother. And like most of us, life can sometimes throw you a few curveballs. And if you're lucky enough to have the skills, resilience, the life experience to deal with that, then you deal with them. If you're not so lucky, you might struggle to cope. And struggle is what he did. Life became too overwhelming for my brother. And my brother's way of coping was through alcohol. And after a number of years of drinking heavily, to the point where my brother started to lose everything, he lost his business, he lost his home, and eventually he lost his life to alcoholism. Those first few weeks after he passed, for me, seemed like a complete blur. You're going through the motions. I was very much on autopilot, making sure that my parents were okay, making sure my sister was okay. 
I was organizing his funeral and all the administration that goes with that, running through checklists. And looking back, you think, how did I do that? How did I actually cope? And it wasn't until I got back in a plane and came back to the UK to what I call inverted commas, my other life, that it hit me. My grief kicked in when I hit UK soil. So for the first few months, I wasn't myself at all. I was pulling back from everything socially. I didn't want to see people. I didn't even want to put on a brave face. I just started to cut myself off a little bit. So I began to withdraw. When I did see people, I found myself rattling off a few well-rehearsed words to summarize my brother's loss and all of my feelings into one tight, neatly wrapped little package, usually with the sole purpose of making them feel better. Funny enough, it wasn't until later on down the line when I needed people to check in on me that they didn't. And I felt abandoned. I felt like friends and even family members didn't show up, quite literally. I would find myself getting really angry at them and mourning the loss of our friendship and our relationship. And how could we ever go back to where we were if they're not here for me now when I need them the most? That's how it felt for me. It was a roller coaster of emotions. So yeah, Victoria, what about yourself? What does grief mean to you? What's been your experience? And why is it important for you to speak today? Oh, thank you, Mark, for sharing that. The story I'd like to share happened to me 22 years ago, and it was a deeply defining personal moment in my life and in my career. In 1999 and early 2000, I was expecting my first child, a boy, Tom. I was almost eight months pregnant and preparing to go on maternity leave. And I was organizing my caseload and, you know, preparing things at home when a routine scan showed he had fluid in his lungs. 24 hours later, a stream of doctors told us that actually they didn't know how he could be alive. They couldn't believe that he was still alive, given the shopping list, as they called it, of critical problems that he had. 48 hours after that, I gave birth to my stillborn son. And this changed my life forever. Up until then, I'd viewed the world through rose-tinted glasses, privileged and unaffected by trauma. Tom's death changed me. It changed my outlook on life, my overwhelming need to recognize his existence, and I guess my commitment not to cover. I became someone who talks openly and often about the way I feel. I'm an open book. I encourage people around me from my teenage second son, Joe, to the people in my team today to talk more about themselves. Understanding how life has impacted the individuals in my team allows me to build deep connections and ultimately ensures I remain grounded in the things that matter. So I guess, Mark, I've talked about how losing a loved one can change a person forever, but grief doesn't have to mean you lose yourself forever. What got you through it and how did you keep going? Thanks, Victoria. And thank you for sharing that story. For me, it might sound like a bit of a cliche, but it was work that got me through it. The work that I do now and that sense of purpose and belonging that we all need sometimes to get us through life, to get us through situations. And for me, it was work. And it's because of my brother I do the work that I do today. I was drawn into working in mental health or mental health kind of found me, I suppose, back in 2017 after I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. And in trying to cope with everything that was going on at the time in 2017 and the years before that, leading up to that, the level of stress that me and my entire family was under for those few years really, really took its toll. But that diagnosis for me was a massive turning point, and it eventually led to me going into mental health first aid. I went to a mental health first aid two-day course as a learner, which in time led to me going into mental health full stop. I decided to retrain and qualified as a mental health first aid instructor in 2017, bridging that gap in knowledge and skills and awareness for other people. 
And the thing is, for every session that I deliver since then and to this very day, my brother is at the very heart of it. He's always there in the back of my mind or right at the forefront, depending on the day. My brother's always there with me. I like to think that Brian is part of the Burn Dean team and he's on my team. And I'm pleased that this can be part of his story and part of his legacy, if you like. Also, for me, work was always a bit of an anchor. It felt safe and familiar and reliable. And those are the things that we look for when we're scared and troubled and vulnerable. So not everybody feels that way, but that was certainly the case for me. So with that, thinking about the different types of grief that are out there, there's so many different types, I suppose. Any loss can be devastating. But how would you say, Victoria, how do you compare the loss of an elderly parent or a grandparent to the loss of a partner or a colleague or a friend? Is there a comparison to be made and, and maybe should we approach it differently? Yeah, it's a difficult question. And so I guess first I should say I don't believe you can or should compare. There's no trump card here. The loss of a partner is not more or less significant than a grandparent or than a losing a baby. But the experiences are bound to be different, not least because the relationships will be different and the lived experience of the person grieving will be different. When Tom died, I lost my baby boy, but I also lost the life I thought I was about to have. So I grieved him and I grieved feeling him in my body. I recall that my arms ached for him. You know, I literally, I, I can remember not knowing what to do with my arms. And, and afterwards, I read that this was common when mothers lose their babies. I mean, I, I was so conscious of my arms and these things attached to my body, and I just didn't know what to do with them. But the grieving went on and on, way past the three months maternity leave I had and long into my return to work. You know, there's no template or one way to approach these conversations, but it is surely critical to try and understand what that individual's experience of grief is. And I'd like to share an example. I remember going into a colleague's, and it, and it was a male colleague's office, soon after I learned I was pregnant with my daughter, Charlie, about six months after losing Tom. And this was to tell him about my pregnancy. I know that sounds weird, but I, I decided to tell people early because I wanted people to know that I was really scared and excited and that these two competing emotions might impact my behavior. I think a piece of me actually felt quite disloyal to Tom as well. I was excited about my new baby, don't get me wrong, but I wanted, I wanted people to understand that I wasn't forgetting or replacing Tom. You know, I, I felt absolutely compelled to tell people that. I don't think I had the language for what I was doing then, now I know I think that I was sharing what was happening to me, that, that I knew that the way I felt would impact how I acted and how I behaved with people. And I wanted people to know because that might mean they'd perceive me more kindly, you know, perhaps give me the benefit of the doubt if I acted in an uncharacteristic way rather than rush to judge me in the way I saw people do in law firms then. I remember him interrupting me, like literally after a couple of minutes, you know, and he said, can I stop you? He said, and he kind of held his hand up. It's fine. You know, please don't tell me anymore. Probably best for you to just keep it to yourself. I don't want to demonize him. He just wasn't used to a colleague talking to him about her personal life on such a level. And I think it made him feel uncomfortable. I mean, I know it made him feel uncomfortable. I could see it. You know, and so I stopped, of course, and I focused on his discomfort 
rather than mine. When I think about it, all I wanted was some recognition that this was massive for me, that I carried it around with me every day, every moment of the day. And if you like, that it was me. I found a lot of people who've talked about grief who have said they didn't want it to define them, but it did define me. And I wanted people to understand that because I think it made a difference. But I stopped reaching out to people. And given that barely anyone asked me how I was, I mean, how I really was, my grief was something that I kept at home. By comparison, Mark, how was it for you? I know your experience of grief was in a workplace that you'd only just started here at Berndine. And this was three years ago. What was your experience of grief like in our workplace? Thank you, Victoria. First of all, I just want to say I'm really sorry that you had to go through that all those years ago. That sounds really awful. But thankfully, I think the world of work has moved on a little when it comes to talking about how we feel at work. And bear in mind, I'd been working in mental health myself at this stage. I qualified in 2017. Brian died in 2019. So I've been doing this for about two years. So I was getting a lot better at talking about my own feelings as well. However, nothing prepares you for that phone call, which at the time, the phone call that I had always dreaded that my comic came and I was only two weeks into Berndine, would you believe? I was with Richard Martin and I couldn't have been with anyone better really because Richard himself is a very experienced mental health first aider and a mental health first aid instructor. And he knew exactly what to say and what to do. And he was brilliant. And bear in mind, we'd only just gotten to know each other. We'd only known each other a few weeks at this stage. But he said all the right things. And then he he kind of sent me on my way. By the time I'd gotten back to the UK after the funeral and everything had passed a few weeks into work, the very nature of the work we do is we're like ships in the night, aren't we? A lot of us are on the road a lot. This was pre-pandemic. We're we're not seeing much of each other in in a typically nine to five office style setup. So lots of ships in the night, but that didn't stop the messages coming through text messages, emails, voice notes, people from the whole Berndine family, across the whole family, some of whom I'd barely gotten to know at this stage, were reaching out and checking in and just letting me know that they were there and they showed up. And that's exactly what I needed at that time. That was really important to me. As time moved on and my grief began to change, I felt completely at ease talking about my brother with Richard. Richard was my boss then for the next couple of years. And I was really comfortable being vulnerable in front of Richard. And there's not many people who can say that about their boss. And for that, I'll always be very grateful. A couple of stats just to throw out there before we get into another question. I was looking at a report recently from Marie Curie, 2021 white paper they put together, looking at the prevalence of bereavement in the UK today. So they surveyed over a thousand UK employees and the prevalence of of bereavement, about 24% of your staff right now are probably going through some form of bereavement in any given year. Up to 56% of your staff would consider leaving if they didn't feel as though you handled their bereavement well. So I'm thinking here, compassion, care, understanding. You know, those are big numbers. Quarter of your staff going through something, over half of your staff considering leaving if, if it didn't feel right. So that's, that's a lot to think about there from an employer perspective. Victoria, for anyone who's listening right now, to any employers out there who are still tiptoeing around this topic or who might be struggling with the how-to, what would you say to them? First, I just want to say, Mark, that I just love the idea that Brian is part of the Berndine family. That feels really good. I guess what I'd say to employers is that the how-to bit is the tough bit. There isn't one way to do this, but I do have a few ideas. 
I'm going to start with a policy. Maybe that's the employment lawyer in me, but I think bereavement policies are a really wonderful demonstration that you as an employer see death and grief as part of your team's lives. These policies can, of course, detail the time off, but also what life is like in terms of time on, how someone might work, the support that's in place and the flexibility that can be provided. Policies demonstrate what is business as usual, if I can use that language and, and hopefully not in a way that appears cold. But policies only get you so far. For me, this is about helping your leaders and all your people demonstrate really genuine listening skills, empathy and support. Training around some of the language that is helpful, practicing ways of asking questions in a caring way. You know, and you may think that this is common sense or not the responsibility of an employer, but this stuff is so hard. And it is an employer's responsibility to build and maintain an environment where people can be themselves, not cover and have safe conversations. And frankly, some of us need the help and the tools to do that effectively. But I think you really can learn how to do this stuff well. I wanted to share a bit more of that research with our listeners, the Marie Curie 2021 research. And it told us that 58% of bereaved employees felt their performance was affected several months after the death of a loved one. And it, it's estimated that presenteeism of employees at work following a bereavement cost the UK economy a whopping 16 billion a year. You know, this stuff isn't soft. It's stuff that as employers, we, we need to walk towards. Mark, from an MHFA perspective, what can organisations do to ensure their people feel that they're in safe hands? Sure. Good question. I think my response to that is, you know, to anyone listening, get your people trained in how to have better conversations. At the very heart of every good conversation is a great listener. And MHFA training helps to provide knowledge, skills and awareness when it comes to spotting the early warning signs of poor mental health. But that's only half the story. You then need to give your people the skills and the confidence to walk towards that other person and hold a space for them in order to have a good to great conversation. Mental health first aid training is not about creating counselors or therapists, much like if you do a physical first aid course, you're not training to become a doctor or a nurse. However, a good mental health first aider can act as a good first response, getting somebody the help that helps them. And that's a really, really important point I'd just like to highlight here, Victoria. MHFA training is not about fixing people. That's not your job. We leave that to the medically trained professionals. Our job as mental health first aiders is to recognize when somebody might need help and then to guide them towards that help. Always in the back of your mind, you should be encouraging the other person to speak with a professional, whoever that might be. In that same report from Marie Curie, they talk about MHFA training and recommending that it's a great place to signpost people who might be in bereavement or grieving. However, they do highlight the fact, and I'm glad they did, that grief is not covered in MHFA training. It's a two-day course. We don't cover grief. It comes up all the time in my training, but it's not covered in detail, if you like. And also, we need to recognize that grief is a natural human response. It's an emotional response to traumatic life events. Grief is not a mental health condition in of itself. However, it doesn't mean a good mental health first aider cannot be a point of contact. If you are going to be signposting people to your mental health first aiders or thinking about having mental health first aiders in that capacity, I would certainly think about giving them some additional training or make sure that they're really well-versed in what grief and bereavement is before signposting in that respect. 
Another thing we do in MHFA training, we talk a lot about resources. There's some brilliant resources available to anyone who attends the course. And I pulled down just a handful here to highlight in today's session on grief specifically. So there's cruise bereavement care. I'm always surprised by the amount of people who've never heard of it. They offer support, advice, and information to adults and young people when somebody dies. They run a helpline as well as facilitated bereavement counseling groups throughout the whole of the UK. There's other similar organizations like the Compassionate Friends, Dying Matters. There's a group called the Lullaby Trust, which is specialist support for bereaved families dealing with infant death. And SOBS, which is specialist as well, which stands for Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide. All doing brilliant work. Again, there'll be links and details to all of this at the end of the podcast. One other thing just to mention, I heard about these recently, which really took me a step back, but fascinating. And they're doing great work, apparently. Death cafes. Death cafes are popping up all over the place where they're bringing people together over tea, coffee and cake to talk about death and dying, to try and normalize it and help people through their grief as well at the same time, which I think is fantastic. And I spoke to somebody who went to one not so long ago and she said it was a real, real support to her. So something to look at as well. It's worth noting that the MHFA two-day course has recently had a revamp and a repackage, and it's now including up to three years support for any mental health first aiders that come on board as well. So this includes access to ongoing training, resources, and access to the MHFA supporter app. So Victoria, final question from a Dean perspective, what else can people be thinking about when it comes to supporting others at work? Oh, wow. Well, there's so much to talk about there. The listeners will probably be relieved to know that we haven't got much more time. But ultimately, for me, this is about building psychologically safe cultures. Leaders need to lead, but everyone is accountable for their workplace culture. Psych safety is a community feeling. It's not a policy or a poster by the lift. It's about people stepping up and saying how they feel without fear of embarrassment, blame, ridicule, exclusion. But it's something that has to be cultivated. You can train for it, but it's about what you say or do in the moment, you know, in that precise moment or what you don't say, to be honest, or don't do in the moment. Grief is an emotion, a big one. Employers can't afford to ignore the emotions of their teams. Emotions drive behaviours and performance. As I said, this stuff isn't soft. There's a wealth of research out there, and we've talked about the Marie Curie one already, but a wealth of wider research which supports the link between psychologically safe environments and innovation, creativity and production. Today in the post-pandemic world, it's widely recognised that there is huge value in an environment that allows space for different voices. Some recent research by Accenture shows a culture that changes to prioritise purpose, authenticity and psychological safety leads to an increase of 29% in levels of trust, accounts for 59% of employees' intention to stay, and you know that's what we're all trying to achieve right now, and delivers to shareholders a 7.4% revenue growth premium. So start with ensuring you really are creating safe spaces for different and quieter voices and then equip your people with the tools to protect those spaces. Anyway, back to you, Mark. Thank you so much, Victoria. Those are some powerful stats. And I love the piece around those voices, all those different voices, that rich diversity that we have in workplaces. Bring it out, bring it to the forefront. That's what's going to keep us going, going forward. Thank you so much, Victoria. And there you have it, folks, who's speaking about our own personal stories with grief and what we have learned along the way. We hope that you too have learned something here today. 
something that you might take away for yourself or perhaps something you can pass on to somebody else. As I've said, there'll be a list of resources linked in with the podcast itself as well. So you can access that if need be. And finally, I just want to say a great big thank you to you, Victoria, for sharing your own personal story and for being so open and honest with your feelings here today. I know it makes a big difference. Thank, thank you. And for your story, too. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now.